Well, welcome to the second episode of the How Do You Talk to Someone When podcast series. Today's episode is an important one and one I'm really anticipating getting into. It's how do you talk to someone when they're experiencing depression? And uh, one of our special guests today is uh, Chris Cipollone. Now, Chris is a, does a lot of things and has been involved in a lot of things and has some wonderful things to say. So I might welcome you, Chris, and uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast and ask if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. But firstly, just great to have you here. We're so um, blessed to be able to talk with you, and I know it's going to be so good for our listeners to hear from you today. So thank you and welcome. Oh, thank you, Nick. It's a privilege uh, getting to know a little bit more about AIFC. You guys do great work, and it's so aligned with much of what I've been trying to do over the last few years. And uh, thank you for having me, and well done for pronouncing my last name correctly. You got it 100% right. Hey, we're off to a good start. <laughs> uh, a little bit about me, uh, 37 years old, family guy, married to Lara for 14 years, four kids, uh, 10 years old, eight years old, and six-year-old twins. And so that journey in and of itself in the mental health landscape has been an interesting one. Um, theologically trained, so I've worked as a pastor for about 10 years, um, but for the last 18 months, two years, I've stepped away from that. I don't know if that's going to be temporary or permanent. Um, there is a book that I've written on mental health that I'm sure we'll talk about. So there are speaking engagements that go with that. Uh, and then I'm also piloting an evangelism ministry at the moment using smartphones, actually. And so that's a bit of a pipe dream and we're building it and developing it. And uh, my heart is very much in uh, evangelistic work at this point. Uh, what iteration that takes in the long term, we'll see. But I think we've got something a bit exciting uh, in the works going forward. Ooh, okay. I might get some details of that uh, to <laughs> put in our show notes at the at the end of the podcast as well to give that a plug. Sounds good. Now, you mentioned uh, you have been working in – you still work – we're all in ministry to an extent. Mm -hmm. You're working in ministry as a pastor – you're doing the, uh, the the is it an app now and there's a, and there's a focus yeah, through that. Yeah, it will be it will be smartphone technology, uh, yeah. smart website more than an app at this point. Yeah, wow. Okay, and uh, an author. Yes. Of down, not out, depression, anxiety, and the difference Jesus makes. Mm. I, I I've read the book. Uh, I can <laughs> say that. And you I, haven't told me what you think yet. This is a bit dangerous. No, no, that's right. So this is good for both of us, I think, because I, I found it to be very accessible and um, I, I, I really liked how you, like even the, the headings that you go through, and I'll, I'll let you talk about those. I won't I read, mm -hmm. read them out. Just just those those single words that you say in, in the chapter headings mm. um, and your your discussion around gospel identity. Yes, uh, I like that term, and so I, I, f I found myself just um, having had experienced depression a number of years back myself. Um, I was able to relate to it in that way, um, so I found myself relating to it. Um, I found myself really leaning into it. Mm. Um, I liked the language that you use. I think it was very disarming. Yeah, and and probably that word that's it was so accessible. Yeah, and and uh, it wasn't sort of. I wasn't sort of reading a chapter or a page and then I'd have to sort of, okay, that'll do. I gotta, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't wiping me out. Yeah. I, I wanted to keep turning the pages. Yeah. And I think that the big thing is it, it pointed me towards God. Yeah. And I think it was it was real and at times hard hitting, but but ultimately I think it was very hopeful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think the accessibility, uh, that, that happened for two reasons. First and foremost, I'm not a massive reader myself. And I do like reading, but I wouldn't call myself a reader. And so for me, frankly, I don't know how to write a tome. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I have that in me. And so my, my style, I suppose, is conversational for that reason. And then the second reason is if you're writing a book uh, tailored towards people who are struggling in their mental health, they're probably not going to be able to commit to something massive. And so I think for those two reasons, accessibility did become important. And uh, as you say, the, the term gospel identity was a big deal throughout. And I think that question of, of who am I when I'm at rock bottom uh, became a significant question for me. Um, often we live in a world, and, and frankly, I don't think we know it all the time. We live in a world where we're defined by what we do. 
And when your capacity on account of mental illness is taken away, your dignity and your validity for even being here starts to get called into question. And so I guess you're left with two choices. You either give up or you are forced to believe that there's another identity going on, which I hypothesize is that gospel identity that I speak of, which is essentially an identity as a beloved child of God, as opposed to a father or an author or a pastor or whatever else we define ourselves by at our core. We are, we are none of those things. Uh, they are manifestations of who we are and, and who we are as a beloved child. And that, that was very liberating for me. Did uh, that, was that a journey in coming to what you just said in terms of that, the, the depth of that gospel identity? Did you, did you know that beforehand? And then uh, in, in more recent years, it's got to a point where that just became a, a much more major revelation or a deeper truth for you. Was it? Yeah, I think I knew it in theory. Yeah. Uh, probably like a lot of your listeners, you've you've heard sermons for many years, and actually, in hindsight, I think those sermons. It's it's funny you don't always remember single sermons. In fact, rarely you do. And I'm a preacher, and I don't always remember the ones I've preached. But you realize when you hit a crisis point, you've got this worldview and this understanding that you've built up over many years that it's almost like it's prepared you for the war times, yes. and. Um, yeah, so I think I, I would have said I knew what the gospel was before I hit my breaking point, certainly. And I still now would have called myself a, a genuine Christian. Um, but the the need to genuinely preach that to myself in a very heartfelt, probably gritty way is probably the best way I can put it. Um, when you're faced with that question of why am I here? Why am I bothering? Um, who am I? And... Uh, I think at that point, um, in that crisis moment, and so in that way, it was quite instant. Um, it was it was when I was admitted in a psychiatric hospital that I had that revelation. As I asked myself, "Is there any point going on?" The answer was yes, and this is why. Um, I think was a culmination of many years of, if you like, theoretical study <laughs> that that came to the fore when I really needed it in practice. Wow, you. There's a few things I'd love to ask you there, but I think it would be good to just hear a little bit of your, say, backstory or the story that that led to some of the journey. And you talk about it in the book. Yeah. Are you able just to give us the, um, you know, the the headlines to, to the story of, of Chris in terms of coming into this this period and what led yeah. to the writing of the book, really? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll start with the, the most climactic moment and then uh, reverse engineer that, if you like. Okay. So the book picks up in 2014 with me in a psychiatric hospital. That was a voluntary admission. Um, it was something that I wouldn't go as far to say I wanted to do, but I knew that I needed to do. Um and that really was the breaking point of asking myself, who am I? Um, as, as you go back a little bit, that point in September of 2014 was six weeks before my graduation as a theologically trained student going into a pastoral ministry. And so that in itself is a curious blend of can someone considering ministry, let alone being a about to start being a pastor, be in this situation? What does that mean for the ministry that God has for me? Um, and so leading up to that, I, I was 20, no, I was 30 years old. Sorry. I actually had my 30th birthday in hospital and I would track my mental health journey back to about the age of, I would say 20 or 21. Um, that's when I noticed things start to change. I say in the book that I think I didn't become depressed because I was overly pessimistic about life. I became depressed because I think I was overly optimistic about life and okay. sec- and secular psychologists call this the reality gap. Mm. Uh, when you have something you're expecting for your life, you can do anything, go get it. You know, that kind of philosophy as a young person. And actually, as I started to kick the life goals and the life goals were letting me down to a certain degree, because ultimately in hindsight, I would say I was virtually worshiping them and they were going to let me down. Um, so going to university, the first person in my family to do so, uh, getting married, getting a job, having kids, going overseas, all these things that I was meant to tick off, which I was doing, and in many ways living the dream that I had set myself to do, and yet more and more spiralling into this sense of disillusionment. Um, 
that 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 was the I guess the, the long term trajectory of what was happening for me mentally between the ages of 19, 20, 21, and then to age 30 when I when I came into hospital. Um, the as I said, the, the coinciding with finishing a theological degree was just another level of that. Um, this is not what pastors do. This is not what happens to them. They've got it all together, and I, I don't. And so uh, that's that's the very broad brushstrokes, and there are key moments within that probably eight-year journey that led me to hospital. Yes, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Had you experienced uh, – let me say, when did you um, – <laughs> When would you say you became a Christian or your, your yeah. relationship with God started in the sense where you're aware of it? Yeah, I think uh, Christian home growing up, mm-hmm. so I always went to church. But the key moment for me was uh, my decision to be baptised as a 13, 14-year-old. Um, we had a pastor who I, I loved dearly and he was about to retire and uh, I just wanted to be baptised by him. I think I'd seen family members who'd also grown up in Christian, the Christian home that I'd grown up in, uh, decide not to follow Jesus. And so that was a very big wake up call. So this is not a foregone conclusion. And so I think between seeing family members choose to not follow Christ and this pastor retiring, that was the catalyst. And I think that was really uh, the moment when it, when it all solidified for me. I I remember coming up out of the water and uh, just, it's hard to feeling a spiritual moment, if you like, yes. feeling an immense lightness, uh, a liberation, both physically and emotionally, and I guess ultimately spiritually. And so from there, you know, it, it's had its rocky moments. Later in my teenage years, I stopped going to church for a couple of years. I look back in hindsight and can see God's very caring, gracious hand over me because personally, I never felt in danger of losing my faith at that time. But you know, if a teenager came to me as a pastor and said, I want to stop going to church, you know, I'd be throwing my hands up in the air and thinking it was all over. Um, For me, I I never felt that sense of insecurity. And so, um, yeah, about 13 or 14 years old is when I'd say I became a Christian for myself. And and our faith can be so important and is so important for us, can be so important in in journeys around mental health. Mm. And we'll talk about anchors in a little while. Just wanted to explore with you, but we we do have uh, elements of our own personality, don't we? That that, yeah. that stay with us, our, our own way that we um, invite or treat or handle emotions and strong feelings. Yes, and and just want to explore that with you around. There's there's my faith, and yeah. there's these elements of of my personality or how I handle emotions and feelings, and and sometimes you talked about a, a reality gap. We can sometimes say to ourselves, "Well, I shouldn't be feeling this." <laughs> I'm a I'm a person of faith. Yes. How's, what's that journey been like for you? Ah, oh, Nick, that's a great question. I, I've actually never had that question asked to me before, and that's that's a good one. I I think as you talk about personality, for me, the first word that comes to mind is perfectionist. Okay. And I think that starts to feed into the reality gap a little bit. That that's what I think was one of the primary catalysts to driving me towards depression. I say slightly tongue in cheek now, but it's it's serious in many ways. Being a perfectionist in a fallen world is a tortured reality. Wow. <laughs> you know that that is it, it's not compatible. The world is not perfect, and I should have known that of all people as a Christian. That's that's what in many ways my worldview is based on. But functionally and day to day, driving myself towards self improvement, almost to the point of utopia or trying to find it in this life. And again, not consciously, but if I look at my actions, I'd say that was what was largely driving me. Um, I think that is something that I've wrestled with in the lead up and still wrestle with now. Um, I think your comment about I shouldn't feel like this is really wise as well, because that perfectionism drove me towards that spiral. It also complicates the recovery for that reason, because you can beat yourself up. Uh, I, I shouldn't feel like this um, why can't I do the things that other people can do all that kind of thing. And I think the only way you can push through perfectionism is to discover the grace of God over your life, that you are not defined by what you do or you don't do. You're defined by who you are. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I haven't graduated this flaw in my personality. You haven't arrived um, yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, but I think I'm, I'm growing through it. I think yeah. God has taught me a lot about how I treat other people and be more gracious to them. Um, and also how I treat myself has been a big revelation. Yeah. 
was that revelation and the and the has that been that we say post hospitalization and pre hospitalization? Yeah, and that was a very sort of a, a very key point of literally, as you said, almost self admission. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, hospital was the moment, you know, and I put the moment in capital letters yeah. because that was my choice point. Um, frankly, do I give up on life because life as I've been trying to construct it is not working? Or do I ask myself, is there another way? Is there another foundation to build upon? And so in many ways, you know, it's kind of like a BCAD, you know, there's a before hospitalization and an after. <laughs> Um, but but also I should say in that moment that there was a God moment while I was in hospital. It was not just my ability to figure something out um, in a very, I would say, supernatural way. And, and I'm not, uh, I, I'm very charismatically open, but I'm not um, charismatically every day, if you like. Um, but I do think God gave me a supernatural moment of his grace in hospital that fed into these realizations beginning. Yeah, that wow. And and I having that maybe help me a little bit understand and also the listeners around here around that that you sometimes make light of oh, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, but it can be quite dominating in, in our lives, can't it? And more it's serious. crippling. It can be crippling. Yeah, okay, yeah. let's go with crippling. Yeah. Um, how hard or, or or how how deep did you have to dig to go because um, I imagine one of the aspects of that is, um, uh, you know, ad- admission and asking for help. Yeah. You know, because if you're in that perfectionist um, vein, you, yeah. I don't mean being vain, but that in that sort of, um, in that way, yeah. um, you want to kind of fix it yourself. Yeah. Um, so, so how big was that for you in sort of reaching out saying, I need help from yeah. others? Yeah. Yeah. It was big in one way. It was incredibly, it was the most humbling thing I've ever had to do. Um, And as I said, I spent my 30th birthday in hospital and I knew that in making that decision, I would spend my 30th birthday in hospital. That in and of itself is a, you know, put together Anglo-Saxon male in the West, you know, is a, that's a really confronting thing to have to face. You know, that is not what your 30th birthday is meant to look like. At the same time, it was actually very liberating making that decision because it was indicative of just how desperate I was. Um, it wasn't it wasn't me saying I need help. It was me saying I need more help. Um, I'd already been seeking intervention to that point. I'd seen a psychologist. I'd started medication. I mean, I was speaking about it with friends, family, pastors as much as I could. Um, and it just wasn't enough. And I went to my wife and said, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I literally need more help. And she had had a friend who had in the same way voluntarily admitted herself to hospital, found it helpful. Um, and so the next thing we're in the GP's office trying to get a referral. And yeah, it was simultaneously humbling, but also liberating. Uh, I was skeptical that it would, you know, work in inverted commas. I was really worried that it wouldn't. And, you know, if not even hospital works, it's kind of like, well, what's left. That's kind of like, you know, that that's the big one that you go to and I tried everything else. And so I was, I was nervous. Uh, it was humbling, but it was also liberating to go almost stuff it, <laughs> you know, that who cares at this point, let's just try anything. And, and so it wasn't too hard in that respect. Yeah. So there's an element of surrender there. To a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, Without lingering in this, can you just describe some of the what it's like being in that depressed stage? Mm. The best, the best word I can put for somebody who does not know what it is to live with depression is hopelessness. I think that's the best synonym that I could come up with, and I've thought about that a lot. How would I describe it? And I think hopelessness is the word because. I think what people need to understand about depression and and suicidality actually as well is that you you start believing that not only is this day of my life difficult, you know, this this day is a hard one. You start believing that every day going forward is going to be as difficult as this one. And I think that's that's the difference between going through a rough trot 
um, having a hard time and being clinically depressed is it's it's the duration of the feeling, mm-hmm. but it's also the inability to believe that life is ever going to be good again. And, and that's the real torment. It's, I think any of us, you know, if I think about Jesus' words, give us today our daily bread, I think any of us, no matter how much of a curveball has been thrown, you know, the death of a loved one, let's use a catastrophic example, we are able to pull together enough breaths to get through that day as as horrible and as unimaginable as it is. When I start becoming hopeless is when I think I can't do this this way for the rest of my life. And when you're depressed, you don't have a challenge to that mindset. You just assume that that is going to be my story and that is going to be my narrative. And that's when it becomes overwhelming and catastrophic because nobody can deal with that level of pressure in their life. Yeah, that's that. You say that very well. So the the hopelessness with projecting that out to every day is going to be like this. This is my absolutely lot now. Projecting is a great word for it. Yeah, and the inability to have an internal counter voice to that being anything but true. You said something a little while ago about talking to yourself, and um, David Martin Lloyd Jones says that a lot in his writings and preaching and and in his book, Spiritual Depression talking to yourself, not listening to yourself. Hmm. Has that been, how have you practiced that? And how does that play out with you? <laughs> and, and I've read that book also, and I, and I giggled when I came across that. He's right. Um, but the the idea of talking to yourself when you're in inverted commas crazy, um, it's, it's, an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting discipline, um, but it's an important discipline. And I think uh, my understanding of what he's talking about and and what my experience has taught me is as a Christian, what talking to yourself means is really, I think, claiming the promises of, of God in your life as to who you are. And I, I think that idea of claiming is important. I think, you know, in an, <clears throat> in an evangelical background, the idea of claiming can feel arrogant in a way. Um, who am I to say I am this or I can do this, but it's it's not arrogant. It's it's confident in what God has said about his own faithfulness and about who he has said you are. So absolutely, on the one hand, I have fallen short of the glory of God like everybody else. I, I sin, I continue to sin. That's true. <clears throat> in the same breath, I'm made in God's image. Um, I am completely and dearly loved. I He looks at me and says, I am very good in that pre-fall creation narrative. Um, He says that I'm his beloved child, 1 John chapter 3. So it's important to talk to yourself in those ways to remind yourself that, and and I'm about to say something that could be a whole nother conversation. Um, I feel one way, but I know something else to be the case as well. And and the ability to challenge feelings, I think in our uh, dominant culture is increasingly important because feelings have such a currency and we want to enable and validate feelings. And that's, that's good. There is strength to that. You know, you don't want to say, suck it up. Um, but by the same token, if we let feelings become absolute truth without questioning them as a Christian, I think that's really problematic because sometimes we will feel one thing, but God is saying to me another thing and which one is going to win out. That's where the self-talk becomes important. Oh, that is so well said, and and that, it's actually a great segue because I had some questions on feelings. So, so thank <laughs> oh, you. Oh, you're for, welcome. Yeah, yeah. We'll just stop there. <laughs> no, thank you for that. And I, just just that what you said about the the talking to self, not listening to self, mm. claiming the promises is is yeah. great. And I you really um, weave that together so nicely in the book. And, and again, around gospel identity: who am yeah. I? Whose am I? And, and claiming those truths when mm. when the ground is um, is shifting and you, and you're not yeah. in a place to to be able to just uh, anchor yourself by yourself. So yes, you know, that's that's I think beautifully written and and very clearly articulated in your book. Feelings. Mm. Um, thank you for mentioning them. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. We're in a we're in a pretty big feelings culture, aren't we? And, we are. We sure are. Oh my gosh, um, feelings are really variable. Um, yeah. and they kind of want to it feels like they want to control us mm-hmm. um in a if we're in a depressed state or in a depressed period of our life as you mentioned for an extended period of time where it can seem to become chronic um and feelings are in charge yes what does that look like 
the inability to filter them. Um, and, and again, none of this, when you're in it is consciousness, you don't have this capacity. Well, at least I, I didn't have this capacity right. to analyze what was going on. But as I look back, um, let me give you an example that probably best highlights it. Uh, a friend of mine who's a psychologist talked to me about uh, what was, I didn't, I'd not heard of it before, dialectic behavioral therapy. Uh-huh. And uh, I've actually never gone through this therapy myself. My understanding is it's used often for addictions. Um, but the word dialectic, dia meaning two, you know, what do you do when there are two competing voices or two competing agendas? Um which of those truths is going to win out? And so I was talking with my friend, again, who is a psychologist and a Christian about that concept through Christian lenses. And she said to me that there is a difference between and and but, and it's more than semantic. And so what she meant, and well, actually I asked her what she meant because I thought, oh, that's a bit, you know, that's a bit technical, isn't it? That doesn't really matter. It sounds nice, but what does it mean? Yeah, exactly. And, and she gave me this example that's always stuck with me um, she said, start with the feeling that God doesn't love you um, or you feel like God doesn't love you. If you join that concept with the word uh, but, um, it becomes a problem. And so I feel like God doesn't love me. The Bible says God loves me, but I don't feel like he loves me. When we use that conjunction but, the feeling trumps the truth. Uh, the Bible says God loves me, but I'm not feeling it right now. And I'd say that's often the prevailing mentality, not just of people who are living with depression, but our culture. I'm just not feeling it. And so therefore that is true. God does not love me because I'm not feeling it. Um, if you use the word and, and this dire concept, D-I-A, not D-I-R-E, um, this dire concept, uh, the Bible says God loves me and I'm not feeling it, or I'm not feeling like God loves me and the Bible says that he does, suddenly you can sit with that a little bit more. You, you you can sit with the feeling. The feeling is real. You are feeling something. But it allows you to not automatically assume that the feeling uh, represents God's absolute truth. And that for me became really important because it's not telling me just to shut up and ignore how I'm feeling. It's letting me feel how I feel. Uh, but it's also leaving room for that feeling to not be the final word. And so the ability to say, God loves me and I'm not feeling like that today, suddenly that becomes okay (laughs) rather than the feeling being absolute truth. And that for me has been a really important strategy that I encourage people to consider for themselves too. Yeah, again, that's really wonderfully said. And thank you to your Christian psychologist for that. Mm -hmm. One creates a closed system and the other is expansive and gives options, doesn't it? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think there's some good sage advice there for us to put into practice. On that, Chris, for you, what are some things that 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 sounded clearly helpful to you Mm. in that discussion, that conversation? Mm. Uh, What are some things that have been firstly unhelpful that have been (laughs) said to you or or on the journey? And and then we'll come to some helpful things. Yeah. We we do struggle with people are, if, if you uh, could be a family member, a close friend, or, or someone in your circle, and you you want to help yep. and, and them, whether it's anxiety or depression or grief or whatever it might be. Yeah, and you don't necessarily know how to because we can put our foot in our mouth, gee. Um, <laughs> and, and sometimes people just say some really dumb things that are almost yeah. harsh and, and and bordering on harmful. Yeah. Um, so. But what are some things for you that have been not so helpful over, over yeah. time? Yeah, and it, it's so hard, isn't it? When I speak to churches or conferences, I, I generally divide my content into what it's like to live with this and then what it's like to try and care for someone who is living with this because I've been on both sides. I've been the uh, the inpatient in hospital and I've also been the pastor recommending others going to, to hospital for go. a stay. You know, so I've been on both sides of that. And it's, it's really hard because I don't know anybody who – uh, wants to do damage. And so there needs to be mercy here. Um, and yet there are some best practices to remember. Look, for me, I think if I had to give one thing, I would say if you are in that caring, walking beside kind of role, temper your expectations around time frame. I think that is probably the first thing that I would say because that feeds into patience levels. Uh, patience levels feed into grumpiness or shortness 
Um, the, the worst thing I think you can do is to show conditional love to somebody who is struggling because they are showing very conditional love to themselves in that moment. And so when you do that, you're reinforcing a, a damaging narrative that I am only worthy when I am put together. Easier said than done. You know, this journey can be years, but it's it's funny. I think the most damaging thing I've heard, Nick, and please feel free to disagree with me because I'm still wrestling with this one actually, is is not something some somebody has specifically said to me. It's a it's a concept that I've noticed in society has been promoted. And I I actually am not a fan of it. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's, it's that saying where you tell somebody that they should feel comfortable to get help for depression or anxiety in the same way that they should get help for a broken leg or a broken arm. And I talk about this in the book. Yeah. I love the intention behind it because it's trying to destigmatize mental illness in the same way you would go to a doctor for this, you should go to a doctor for this. And, and to that extent, it's absolutely correct. You, it's, you should feel comfortable to do that. Where the analogy falls down and where I think people haven't thought it through is around the time frame, um, because what you're doing is comparing an acute illness to a chronic illness. When you break your arm, by and large, you've probably got two or three ways you're going to fix that arm. It's going to take six to eight weeks. You'll be back on your feet. When you say to somebody, you should go to your doctor to speak about depression, you are potentially opening the floodgates to a 10, 20, 30 year journey. You just don't know because it's not as simple as a broken arm or a broken leg. And so that's what I mean about temper your expectation around timeframes. It's a slow burn. It's a long journey. It can be a very frustrating journey. And the more you can prepare yourself for that at the front end, you know, God may do something miraculous overnight and, and we should leave room for that theologically, I think. But in my experience and the experience of others, it's it's a long gritty journey. It's a journey of, you know, one step forward, two steps back, all that kind of thing. And so the more you can come to terms with that, the better you can love. And the more you can communicate that to your loved one, I am here for you in all of these seasons, um, whether it's a month or a year or 10 years, I'm here for you. Let me know how I can be here for you rather than go to the doctor, get on meds and you'll be right as rain. I think that's a really problematic expectation to set up for somebody who is looking for hope in their moment of hopelessness. Mm, again, so well said and can be very, um, if I think of my own journey, it can be because you, you have a lot of focus on yourself yeah. when you're in it, don't you? Yeah. A- and can be, and, not but. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and can be very challenging on those around you who, who it, deeply care about you and love you. Yeah. And I want to say that as well. If you are in that caring role, Oh, man, it's hard. And so I've just said what best practice might be, in my opinion, uh, easier said than done. You know, again, I've been on both sides of it and it is so draining and so exhausting. And frankly, if someone is in deep depression, you may get it absolutely right. You may nail your advice. You may just speak the textbook perfectly. And if they're in a bad frame of mind, they still may spit you out for it. That That is a possibility. And you need to be emotionally prepared for that too. But as I said, the more consistency, longevity, um, unconditionality of the kind of love that you're showing, it's not a guarantee, but it works out a lot better in the long run, in my opinion. Yeah, and so longevity of relationship and consistency become important because it's not like one great statement that you're going to really make to a person who's experiencing depression and, and there's a silver bullet in what you're yeah. saying. It's Is it being cons- presence? Being consistent, yes. longevity of relationship, because it's potentially a potentially a long journey, and it's it's the privilege and the the responsibility and the opportunity. I think of the church in this space. You know, we are not here to treat one another. Leave that to counselors, psychologists, experts, doctors. But there is something that they are not being asked to do that we can do, and that is to love in the long term, to walk beside to have the cup of coffee, to play the round of golf, to watch the episode of Netflix, whatever it is, there is a complementary role that fellow Christians can and should play that is immensely important. Um, it's when we get the role confused and we try to treat instead of care, which are two different things that we run ourselves into trouble. But make no mistake, as a carer, you still are so important in that overall picture for your loved one. Just make sure you know what that role is. 
Yeah, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to say to those who are in that caring position now or in that proximity to those in their lives who might be experiencing depression? Yeah, I, I think be consistent. As I said, you know, um, if golf was your thing that you did with that person, keep offering to play golf. The person may say no, that's okay. Keep keep offering from time to time. Show that you're not just going to forget about them. Um, and then, look, one of the best things you can do is refer them to counsellors, to doctors, um, get some advice on who you know. I think recognise your limitations in terms of the insight that you can give and recognise that there are others who have done a lot of training in this space to be able to do that as well. And and the act of referral, even going to the first appointment, if that's what the loved one wants, that can just be a very powerful thing to walk them into that. And and it's it's frankly freeing as the carer to go, oh, thank goodness, I don't need to do that part of it because I feel ill-equipped. I can do my bit, they can do they, their bit, and on the whole, there is a beautiful holistic um, treatment of recovery that is happening in that space when that happens. Yeah, there's a lot going on below the surface. Yeah, yes. Is there almost a because it's messy? Mm. Is there almost in a sense of some role clarity? If I could use that term, it sounds a bit like an organisation. Um, yeah. Is there some establishing some role clarity of this is what I sort of can help and be and do in this space here? But beyond that, I you know. Yeah, I think yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, if we think about Jesus' great two great commandments to love God and love our neighbour, the role is to love, not to treat or to fix. Yeah. Now, the question of, okay, what does love look like? That's That could look like a whole host of things. But as a paradigm, let's focus on the goal of love, not solution. Um, ironically, as we love, we become part of the solution. <laughs> but that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to love and see where that goes. And so, again, just practicing that consistency, that presence, that that validation that I still love you, even though you are not at your full capacity even though, to be brutally honest, you're not always easy to be around because yeah. that will happen, but I still love you because you are a beloved child of God, so what right do I have to treat you any differently? That's the goal. And then in each specific situation to work out, okay, what does that look like in my relationship with this person? But the more you can keep your eyes fixed on that paradigm of those two great commandments, I think the better uh, your practice will go as a friend or family member. Yeah, it's good. Just last one on that, on the carer side. Um, yeah. Thoughts, um, I would say advice on so carers getting support for them because mm. that's yeah. a thing in and of itself, isn't it? There's no shame in it. <laughs> it. It does take its toll. You know, Nick, we were speaking before this interview, you know, for some of my closest family, it took an immense toll on them and fair enough, you know, of course it would. Again, I've been in the the role of pastor as well, and I've had to get supervision myself and debrief situations because they are tumultuous and traumatic at times. And that's whether I'd had a hospital stay myself or not, I would advise that to any pastor uh, to do in that intense environment. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Expect if you're going to walk with someone in the long term, it will take its toll on you. Um, what can you do about it? Uh, you can have your own support network, your own friends and family members. Uh, the reality is the person you are trying to care for cannot inherently at their time of need care back in the same way. You can't ask them to reciprocate. And so you'll need your own external parties of support. So friends, family members, um, your own psychological help, uh, that is okay. That is valid. Um, I just found out actually last year, I didn't know this, but organizations, Lifeline in particular, part of the extent of their work is not just to work with people who are struggling, it's to give support resources. So if you're in the role of carer, you can actually call Lifeline yourself and just have a talk to someone. That's a good point. Um, so the, the need to debrief is really important and it's not a sign of weakness if you're in that caring role. Yeah, yeah. It's really important, isn't it, because you, you – um will have good intentions and can easily burn out yourself in trying to help others. And and that's almost the worst thing that can happen because you you end up essentially giving up on someone that frankly at times might want to give up on themselves. And so it can be a really damaging reinforcement of a of a false narrative if you if you get to that point yourself. So yes, your own longevity, your own sustainability is really important as you try to care for yourself and care for the person as well. 
Yeah, and, and maybe even some mixed feelings of guilt as well about, you know, putting your own oxygen on, mask on first before others in that, that airline analogy. Yeah, I, I say um, I realised in ministry very early the more you choose to stick your neck out for people, the more you risk getting your head chopped off. <laughs> and right. and that's that doesn't mean you don't stick your neck out. You know, that's what it means to, I think, love like Jesus. It's, it's risky. Um, it's costly. And uh, it's almost a sign that I'm in the right path when it's hurting, but I need to do it in a way that is sustainable and, and able to be done in the long term. Yes. Yeah, not a shooting star that burns brightly for a short time and then and then doesn't. I would say if you're in that boat, it's better not to shine at all in, in the sense of being in someone's life. I think coming mm-hmm. in and out very quickly is almost worse than not choosing to engage in the first place in some ways. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, Chris, what have... Uh, let me let me let me take a slightly different take. What what are some of the things that anchor you now? Mm-hmm. One John chapter three verse one became the 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 mission statement, if you like, of the book. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Yeah. Um, that's the gospel identity that I'm speaking about in the book, and that's the anchor that still holds me to this day. Um, I am a child of God. You know, when I stepped out of pastoral ministry 18 months ago, for very different reasons than what the breakdown involved, it was still a confrontation to my identity. Oh, my goodness, I'm not a pastor anymore. Um, That's okay. You know, I am a child of God, and in his spirit-led conviction over my life, this is what I think I should be doing at this point. I may be right, I may be wrong, it may fly, it may fail. It doesn't matter because I'm a beloved child of God. Um, that That's the ultimate anchor. And I think becoming a father myself has helped reinforce that. Knowing that sacrificial fatherly love I have for my kids, and I love them less perfectly than what God loves me, but even in my fragile love for my children, it is, it feels boundless. Um I just want them to come to me when they're in trouble. I don't want them to be school captain as much as I want them to know that I'm there for them. You know, I am not loving them based on their merit. I'm loving them because I love them. And I think realizing that also was God's love for me. And and that is the gospel. God does not love us on our merit. If that is how he loved us, we'd be stuffed, quite frankly. Thankfully. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... I didn't know this term until after the fact, but this idea of society being a meritocracy that we, we judge ourselves by our merit. We're promoted when we hit our KPIs, you know, we make division one when we're good enough in the sport, whatever it is, you know, in those contexts that's suitable, but we shouldn't mistake the fact that that is where we get our worth from because um, it might not be a mental breakdown. Like it was for me. It might be a redundancy. It might be cancer. It might be the death of a loved one. We get all sorts of curveballs thrown our way. And if we subconsciously believe that we are our achievements and we are what we do, we're in for a world of pain because those things are insecure. The thing that is secure is God's love for me. And that is the thing that I can traverse. To quote the Apostle Paul, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, I can learn the secret of contentment in all things because of that identity over me. Yeah. Because, as you just said, Chris, it, it, it might not be depression. It could be a range of different things that we're all going to get hit and knocked off our knocked off axis by something, aren't we? That's yeah. going to sort of test what is it that I believe, who am I, yeah, and what anchors me. And it sounds very. I, I know it sounds very ethereal or you know conceptual. I think it's and it's hard to prescribe what that looks like for each person because each person's journey and situation is different. But I I do firmly believe the more you can tell yourself that narrative and that identity and then apply it to your situation, what does that actually mean to be a beloved child? You're liberated from the pressure of an outcome. You know that you're in your father's care. Um, You know that you can say no to good things. You know that you can say yes to better things. It's it's got a myriad of implications. but I, I do firmly believe that that's the paradigm. Uh, w- one of the the best lessons I learned in pastoral ministry, frankly, through the mistake of another, and he would say that himself, is that I met a dear brother who had a massive breakdown when he retired. 
because retirement was meant to be the promised land. He hit it. He twiddled his thumbs on the first month and he didn't know what to do with himself. He didn't, not only did he not know what to do with himself, he didn't know who he was apart from his career. And that's by his own admission. That's not throwing him under the bus. Um, the more we can realize we are bigger than all of those things. Funnily enough, the irony is when I came to that realization, my capacity probably became greater than ever. Now, I'm not prescribing that for other people, but the things I've been able to do since hospital out of that realization, ironically, are probably the things I was trying to achieve in the first place. It's just that I hold on to them much more loosely because I know that they can be taken away and I know that they don't define me and, and there's liberation there. You wouldn't choose it. It sounds like, Chris, a lot of good things have come out of it by God's grace. Absolutely. And I wouldn't choose it for others, but I'm not um, regretful that it's happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, what would you, uh, in, in wrapping up, uh, in terms of so, so two things, what would you say to some people who are, who are experiencing depression now? And, uh, and second to that, to those who, um, who are caring for them or who are in, the, uh, in their circle um, about how they can best care for them, uh, what to say, and, 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 and to look after themselves. So if, if that all makes sense, starting with yeah. those who might be experiencing depression yeah. now. Um, I think the biggest thing in coming back to depression being hopelessness, I want to say there is hope. And I had people say that to me and I hated them for saying it because, again, I wasn't feeling an ounce of hope. But it is so important to, even not on an emotional level, but to intellectually believe that the possibility of hope is still before you. Um, I know the pain of the darkest day and I know the feeling that there is no way there is ever going to be light again. But if you can learn anything from my story and from talking to others who've been through it, you may be clinically depressed for the rest of your life. I don't want to oversell, you know, I still take medication every day. I, I, I say very carefully, I live with depression. I wouldn't say I'm cured of depression. Um, it, it's managed. And, and with that management, I have light again and I have hope again. And so the more you can be okay with sitting with the darkness and the discomfort of, of the day that is before you to not catastrophize and assume that every day will be as bad as this one and just keep trusting in God's daily bread, putting one foot in front of the other. That is the best thing you can do. Um, and slowly, I think you will find that the trajectory can start to pick up. It, it may be slow. It's going to be gritty, but the more you can reflect longer term and go, actually, there have been little wins here. It hasn't been all bad. I can see progress it's frustratingly slow, but it's there. I think just know that there is hope. And, and a lot of that hope is attached to getting help. And so if you are in that point of hopelessness and you haven't yet sought help uh, from a counsellor, from a doctor, you haven't opened up to a loved one, start there. Um, there is a lot of research. There is a lot of funding in mental health here in Australia, particularly. Yeah. That's a huge blessing. I think going to your GP, if you have one, and if you don't find one, um, can be one of the most helpful, pragmatic first things you can do just to explore, okay, what what avenues are there before me um, and what can I do about it? And, and if you are a Christian, to see that um, the blessing of close counsel, you don't have to tell the world like I did with my book, <laughs> um, but just to find two or three really trusted friends, that's, that's a blessing from God. And so identifying those people and opening up to them, uh, I would say as well. Um, in terms of if you're on the other foot, uh, you're in the caring role. Yeah, look, I think that that patience, that ability to recognize your own finiteness, it, it's going to hurt to see someone you love spiral. Um, it's really hard and it, it's, it takes a lot of energy. And so as we were talking about before, um, step into it, absolutely. Be there for your loved one. Recognize that love is the goal. And recognize that long-term sustainable love looks like having your own support networks is very important. And that's not a sign of weakness yourself, not at all. That's, that's a sign that you are committed to the ongoing sustainable love of the person in your life. Oh, that's, that's so well said, so timely. And I know that's going to, uh, to bless those who listen to it. What, one last thing, Chris, it just comes to mind. We were chatting about this before the show. 
use the term post-pandemic. That may or may not be <laughs> accurate. <laughs> Let's go with it. Um, yep. I hope so. Um, <laughs> just oh gosh, this could this is a whole other podcast. But just, I'm, I'm probably floating on dangerous ground here. But just some thoughts around I don't know the uh, mental and emotional health. Um, mm. You know, the, the, so many things have been disrupted, and not but. There's there's a lot of opportunities out there. Yeah, I, I think um, it's it's been so unsettling. I we we just had our own turn of um, isolation a couple of weeks ago. My wife got COVID, and uh, I was surprised actually. And I don't use this word lightly. I was surprised how triggering it was actually to be back in lockdown after a difficult two years, and you know, four young kids bouncing off the walls. It was a much harder week, and it made me realize this this pandemic thing has taken a bigger toll on me than what I thought it had. Um, I think the important thing to remember <clears throat> and the thing to do in, yes, in inverted commas, this post-pandemic world is to recognise that so much has changed and yet God is unchanging. Um, and again, I don't say that in a trite way. I say that in that what what can you still claim to be sure? What is What is on solid ground when everything else is up in the air? You know, Nick, we were talking about, you know, the, the tree change and should I should I do it? Should I move? Should I um, do the hybrid work thing? What's what's my future going to look like? There are so many questions and we lay them at the Lord's feet. We make the decisions we think are best before us, but we also do it with freedom, knowing that he's never forsaken us yet. Um, he's proven his love on the cross. If if he was willing to give his son on the cross, he's not going to leave me in a pandemic alone. Um, and so we wrestle so much with the what should I do? And that's right. Our world is full of those questions. But in that process, don't forget the who it is that sits over all of it, um, not just in terms of his infinite power, but his infinite love as well. And so that whether you go A or whether you go B, whether the world ends up going A or the world ends up going B, God is still God. And there are still some unchanging realities that we can depend on in a very uh, quickly changing time in the world. That's good. So whatever's before you is starting and pre-finishing with who? Absolutely. Both internally and externally as we look at the world. It has to come back to the question of who do I think God is? Who do I believe him to be? Is he distant, tyrant, uh, kind of laughing at the world? Or is he caring, involved father who has shown that by sending his son? And if it's the second one, then it doesn't take away clinical anxiety and depression, but, man, it helps as we traverse it. Yeah, I think that's a good word for a, a lot of us to hear, Chris. So well said as a, as a man who's experienced depression, still managing it, uh, and and I just really want to say thank you. Your your clear and heartfelt communication. You've 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 been on and are on this journey, and I think you you are doing such a good work. Um, don't come down from that wall. Um, you're doing a good work for a lot of people up there, and and so we just want to say thank you to you for oh, sharing this, you. for for articulating it, and uh, it is liberating and it and it's very timely, very needed. So, um, and thank you for giving you your time to be on the podcast today. uh, No doubt it's going to be of real help to people, which is what this is about. So thank you again, Chris Cipollone. Thanks for having me.